This episode is powered by denmeditation.com. The meditation is the primary focus. The bigger goal is for people to understand and love themselves, thus creating more harmony in the community at large. To find out more about Den Meditation's teacher training programs, retreats, and all things Den Meditation, go to denmeditation.com. Welcome to Den Talks Podcast. This is Tal, your host and the founder of Den Meditation. We have Pete Holmes on today. I'm so excited about this. He's a stand-up comedian. He's had his own television show crashing on HBO. He has written a book. He has an incredible podcast, Keep It Weird. Um, and thank you to Alec, my partner, my husband, for arranging this amazing interview. I am telling you, this is one of the deepest interviews we've actually done. He's unbelievably thoughtful and insightful. You know, when he was young, he was raised devout Christian. And he was like that good boy. He'll tell you about it. He does everything exactly like you're supposed to and keeps it cheery. You know, and then as he went through life and he got married young and everything unravels, he begins a really immensely deep journey of trying to figure out what it all means. So I love talking to him. This is an incredible interview and I think you will really enjoy it and stick around for his personal practice at the end. It is short, it is concise and something you can use at any moment to help you. I love listening to you talk. I love listening to your podcast. Having come from the comedy world, I find you such a fascinating creature, which is why Ugh. I want to have you on here because I feel like you blend so much. You're so in touch with your own spirituality. And yet, you know, I, I live and am married to a comedy writer. So I get it. It's just sometimes people laugh at how opposite we are. But before yeah. we get into the nitty gritty, we start every podcast with the same question. And so mm. I have one question for you. If you could do one word, use one word to describe yourself from five years ago and one word to describe yourself now, what would they or it, if it happens to be the same word, be? Mm. Wow, that's a great question. Um, I, I'm not good with time and that's not me being um, cute or spiritual, although I do think it impacts my ease with certain spiritual principles like timelessness, uh, time being an illusion, all that sort of stuff, <laughs> or all of time being simultaneous. I benefit from just having a mind that just doesn't really um, think too much about the past. Uh, I, I can't say the same about the future. I do spend more time thinking about the future. Anyway, but mm. I realized my daughter is four. So five years ago, the word I would use is rested. And <laughs> the, word I the word I would use now is tired. Uh, and that is, that is just the truest. I mean, I could try and be uh, clever about it, but like my wife and I haven't gotten a good night's rest in, in a long time. I, I've tried so hard to not redo the dynamic. Like my mom was like really raising us and, and, our, and my dad was really supporting us by working. Mm -hmm. And that's still a trigger for me. If you want to ever like wind me up or get me going. Like I was watching that Mark Wahlberg documentary and he, and he was like, everything I do, I do for my kids. And I'm like, no, you don't like, no, you don't. Like I get really worked up. I'm like, why does you it trigger you so much? Cause you have $150 million. It's not honest. It's not honest. Mm. Like everything. A, a, and I'm not putting down a postman. I'm just saying everything a postman does might be for his kids, those extra shifts or whatever, because that's a more understandable model. Like Christmas is coming. Your birthday is coming. I'm going to do that overtime. Mark Wahlberg. Probably has more than $150 million, but 
and, and my father had a, a, enough in certain regards as well. And it's like, it's not that I don't want people to work, but I will never say, because I get so worked up about it, to Leela, my daughter, I'll never say everything I do is for you. That is fucking bullshit. I do it because it's important to meet your own needs. Daddy is mm -hmm. meeting his own needs and dad has strange needs and they happen to overlap with my work. But like it, you could say it's a compulsion or you could just say it's a need and it's okay that Pete likes to perform. And <clears throat> a lot of it has nothing to do with anybody else. It's a hundred percent selfish. I agree with that. <laughs> By the way, no, I agree with that. It's funny. Cause like Alex now back in LA working and the same thing. I don't take the angle with Levy saying, you know, he does it to support us. I take it mm. this, that exact angle you're saying, which is like, no, it's really important. He has a job he loves. He's really good at it. And that just happens to be where it is. Because I, same thing, I agree with you. I think it's really important for kids to see that it's okay to fulfill yourself it's in other the ways. most important thing to model. I think yeah. there, there's a, there's a haunting. My friend had this quote on his mirror. He's in a band and uh, he had this quote on his bathroom mirror. And I went in and I read the quote and I started to cry. Oh, so no. Then this is the quote. Uh, it's Carl Jung. And he says, there's no greater burden a parent can put on a child than the unfulfilled dreams of the parent, unfulfilled life of a parent, something oh. like that. I just butchered it. But I was like, we understand. That's, exactly. Yeah. It's, it was still clear. But like <laughs> the idea that you could drop everything and only meet your child's needs or only be available to them is, is a short-sighted um, understanding of how kids learn and what, and what they need to learn. And when we've already said this, but when dad goes off to do what is written on his uh, bones to do a mix of my psychology and my talents or whatever it might be, she should also do that. And she should fight mm -hmm. for that and defend that in her relationships and in this family. Like, like that's important. And I said, I had a mother that like really sacrificed everything. I don't mean to throw her under the bus, but it would have, it would have meant a lot now that, that, that she's older and she's very bored and it would have meant, uh, something. I don't think either of us knew this. Um, if she had, some passions it, it, like throughout, throughout the whole thing. We'll talk about that a little more. Cause I was going to ask you everything you're saying makes complete sense. And it's such a beautiful thought for us all to think about, but why does it trigger you? Like, so what, obviously your dad worked, your mom was home, but what about that didn't work for you that somehow it riles up this emotional response? Well, it's narcissism. A narcissism is very triggering <laughs> for me. I, I, uh, <laughs> It's also reality building uh, or, or gaslighting, you could say. It, it's like, and the biggest trauma, one of the biggest traumas in my life is there was reality and then there was the world that I felt like my parents were building mentally and then reporting back. It, it was a type of gaslighting. I, I don't think they did it on purpose, but they still mm -hmm. do it. They'll, they'll, they'll say something that is just completely not, the truth per se, per se, you see, I'm still scared of my parents. So I'm like, per se. Um, Isn't that amazing but, how we all do that? They're really great oh, parents, yeah. but. <laughs> the joke we have on our podcast is, is well, if we're getting really close to the truth of it, I'll say the closest child self Pete can get to agreeing is I'll go, that could be true. So now that's our code. Like when Val says something 
that's really brutal about my family or something, I'll go, that could be true. Cause there still is a little boy in me. That's just too scared to really, he, th he thinks it's not even a respect issue. It's a safety issue and it's misguided. It's, I think if I really stake my claim and speak my truth that I'm not, I won't be safe because I, there's, there's still a, a, a seven-year-old boy in me that thinks I need them for my survival. That's really, really hard to get over. It's not a mental thing to get over. It's like a, it's a, it's in your body to get over that. But um, it, it's, it's narcissistic. If you say everything I do is for my kids, it's like you're telling me you're I feel like it's a lie. I feel like it's what you want me to believe. I feel like you're, it's like a political move or, or smoke screening or a snow job or whatever you want to say. <laughs> and if there's one thing that I learned and I'm grateful for having grown up in the family that I grew up in is like, let, can we say what's really happening? Like, let's really, really lay it out. Like actually what's happening. Dad loves work. That would thrill me. That would thrill me if he was like, I love it. I don't know who I am without it. I disappear when I'm not doing it. And that really scares me. So I have to keep working. Even if I want to take a break, I'm scared. Like that would really, that would, that would light all my birthday candles if he said that. <laughs> all your birthday. We'll talk about a little bit of your family. So you grew up very religious, which is, you know, a theme throughout, you know, obviously your book is about it. Your comedy is about it. Your podcast, you talk a lot about it. It informs who you are. So I mean, talk a little bit about, because you, you're talking about this seven-year-old kid who, you know, your, your safety is not speaking your truth. So when you kind of go back to that moment, like what truths do you think of yours probably would have liked to have come out that you just didn't even understand how to express or didn't feel safe to? I mean, so, so uh, what a, you're very good. On my podcast, when someone talks, I just, <laughs> and I take my turn to talk and you're like, that's interesting. I heard <laughs> you. And here's a follow-up question. I'm like, this is really strange for me. <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's very, I like, you uh, know, I like, uh, we're keeping it weird, taking it off. No, of it's, <laughs> it's great. It's, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, it's, it's one of those situations where there wasn't room for unpleasant feelings. Uh, there, there were so many feelings between my mom and my dad and maybe even my brother, but he was doing what I was doing, which was suppressing. And the only role that really felt acceptable, and this is still sort of true, is that of the golden boy, the, the winning, um, successful, happy, cheerful, clean, uh, it's not even kind. It's just appearing to be kind, appearing mm -hmm. to be good. And boy, that just makes me feel sick even just to say that sort of. It's like my dad will text me something about how clean comedy is important or something. And it really, you can see like at a certain point after my divorce, like I really started trying to maybe even inappropriately or, or disproportionately push forward my shortcomings, my ugliness, my ugliness. I don't mean it's actually ugly, but like my grotesqueness or, or my humanity. I, let's go. I like that one the best. I started going like, <laughs> I am a fully formed three-dimensional person. I have anger. I have greed. I have lust. I have disgust. I have rage, whatever it might be, because so much of my strategy as a child was if I appear to be this way, I will get what I want, which is just not, it's, it's, that's, it's nasty. Did you see the movie Ex Machina? Oh my God. I don't know, actually. You it's don't have to I'm have like, seen it? it. 
It, it, I mean, I, I like it, but you don't have to have seen it. But I, I could even explain it to you. There, there's an artificial intelligence robot, and it's and uh, they bring in this young programmer to do the Turing test to see if if he can have a conversation and like a relationship with this thing. And then Oscar Isaac is the guy who made the robot, and he's like a scary drunk. So he's sort of like God, but I actually think he's more like Dad. And spoiler alert, anybody that doesn't want me to spoil the movie that's now over 10 years old, <laughs> skip forward uh, 60 seconds. But what happens is the the robot gets the programmer boy, because she's, she's in a glass cage. She can't escape. She's being held prisoner, even though she's sentient. Um, she makes the programmer boy fall in love with her. So, the, mm -hmm. so he'll do what she wants. And she kills the father. And then she escapes. And I super hardcore relate to that is that like, as a child, I felt like I was to a certain extent and we all are, I had my freedoms and stuff. Don't, don't misunderstand me. This isn't literal. There was just a certain box that I was being held in. So my strategy was to be the most charming, loving, effusive, almost, almost to the I, like emotionally inappropriate. Like I was my mom's guy. I was like, I am everything to you. You want me to be everything to you. I will be everything to you. And you can rely on me to be everything to you. And I'll also try and defeat my father in the movie. They kill him, but like beat my dad in a foot race. And so when I watched that movie, I was like, oh, I'm the robot. And the robot mm. doesn't actually love the program. I, I mean, I love my mom. Don't get me wrong, but I'm just saying exaggerates that, that quality to manipulate. That's what that's the only thing I knew to do. And then, and then uses her skill or her, her power to overtake the father and then leave. She just wants to leave. She just wants to, she's being held Freedom. in a box. She, she wants <laughs> to make mistakes. She wants to be hurt. She wants to hurt. She wants to be greedy, be ugly, be everything. She wants to do everything. And that, and I very much felt like that. So the first 22 years of my life, including getting married the first time, was a little song and dance. And I had no idea who I actually was until I, I got divorced when I was 28. That shattered the whole thing. And not to be a cliche, but that was the best thing that happened because it proved that this model of just be who everybody wants you to be isn't sustainable. You have to be who you are. And, you know, not to just steer this towards the spiritual, but that included like, what do you really believe? Do you believe every Jewish person that died in the Holocaust was sucked into hell? That's, is that what we're doing? Every starving child in Africa that didn't uh, go to your church has gone to hell? And that was, it wasn't just the psychological freedom to be like, Hey, I'm horny. I always joke. I, I had to come out to my parents as straight because all sexuality was dirty. And I'd be like, I'm horny and I'm this and I'm that. And, and, and it came because of the divorce. And that was the ultimate, like, this isn't working. I couldn't fool my first wife. I couldn't sustain it with my parents. And then I broke. And when I, when, when you break, you, you are free. You're, you're, you escape through that brokenness. And I want to talk about getting to that brokenness, but just a little backstory for people who don't know you or, you know, read your book. I mean, you were very religious. Like you, I met one of the, your funny quotes in, in the book, which I love was basically like your first like blowjob is basically your proposal. Like the minute yeah. anything like that happened, you were like, and we must. That's all married. I was thinking about. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> and that's not a joke or like book, like looking back, changing it to be funny. I vividly remember like we are, we're going to get married 
Right. Because in your mind, this does not, this cannot be connected to anything else. But just so yeah. people understand why when this divorce happened, it really was the entirety of you, you know, coming undone because you were mm -hmm. so wrapped tightly, you know, um, and also to explain your mom's thing, one of the things you talk about also is you were everything your mom, like even when your parents fought, like you were the one who comforted her afterwards, yeah. right? Like you'd go mm -hmm. in and just like hold her basically, which is what mm -hmm. you want your partner to do for you after a big fight. That's the robot. That's going like, That's... cause I, that, that was one of the first things I noticed that I didn't want to do, which was a hard reality. There's my older brother and there's my father. And my mom is like, literally like wailing, like, like, like a trapped animal, you know, like in her bed, literally just, you know, and I would do the same thing if I was in that much pain, but signaling someone helped me and no one was helping. And I was like, this is unbearable for me. And then I, I assumed this role in time. I, I, there was a time when I thought it was like maybe Oedipal or like, Oh, I'm my mother's like, I'm the husband she wishes she had. But in time, I actually think I'm more like a father that my mother wishes mm. she had. Like it was, the lines were blurred, but not in the most obvious way. Like, I wish we were together. And if my mom did have feelings, like, I wish it was just me and her, her I think I, there was almost like this, um, again, I know this is sort of strange and I could be totally wrong, but it felt like you'll, you'll take care of me in the way that my father used to take care of me. It felt more, more like that looking back again, I really can't say this enough. I could be wrong. That's just what, cause I can't know what my mom was feeling. That's super important to remember. Do you ever have deep conversations with your parents now that you've come like kind of so far and just evolved so much? Well, I don't want this chat to be too negative. I really don't. But like the, the, my parents are the most complicated thing in my life. <laughs> Meaning there were times when I would, I, I read the book um, Love Wins, which is by Rob Bell. And that's when you know, I was raised Christian and, and I already mentioned it, but the hell issue is like a huge issue. In fact, that, that was sort of the first whiff of baloney or nonsense, uh, was that we weren't constantly talking about it. Like, like, do you, a literal hell, like everybody's going there. Like all these people went there, like Kurt Cobain went there, like remember Kurt Cobain <laughs> killed himself. I'm like, he's in hell and we're just okay with that. And, and, and it, it all hinges on Hell's very, crowded. <laughs> Hell's very crowded and it hinges on a prayer and, and a belief. And I'm like, I'm a kid. I, I, I still believe in Sasquatch. Like, I, I don't understand why this one belief prevents the worst thing that could possibly happen. And let's say, but let's say that is the structure. Why aren't we always talking about it? And why aren't we always trying to figure it out and reconcile and cope? We should all be in trauma therapy. We should all be mourning. We should, you know, like, it just seems so like, it seems so what it was, it, you know, more about identity and, and a, a tribe and, and belonging than it was actually believing that Kurt Cobain is in conscious living torment. But I was, I was taking it to its conclusion as I think any, anybody might, I, I don't know. So I, I really spent a lot of time thinking about Kurt Cobain being in hell. And I, and uh, anyway, so when I read Love Wins, which is a, a great book uh, for anybody who's a raised evangelical or has hell trauma, I there's a power. <laughs> I think there's a real power to going to somebody that's within the tradition and having them comfort you. You could talk to 
Richard Dawkins or whatever and have him be like, it's, it's daft. It's crazy. You, you know, <laughs> that doesn't really work. You need someone who, in my experience, you need someone who's so in the tradition that they can actually come back out it and, and comfort you. And they understand you. And they understand you, but like Richard Rohr is another person who doesn't, um, does not subscribe to the model of hell that we're talking about. Doesn't believe in hell. I, I don't know if he would flat out say that, but Father Greg Boyles doesn't believe in hell. The, the, you like the power of someone investments. I'm not even Catholic, but like wearing clergy robes and being like, no, trust me, listen to this and and tell you biblically or whatever. That was important to me at a certain point. But to answer your question. I sent, I read that book. It, it liberated me in a huge way. It released all of this fear that I'd been carrying around. So I sent it to my mom and, and this was over 10 years ago. I sent it to my Whoa. mom. She, she, but, but it's actually worse. You'd expect as any writer's room would, my mom wouldn't like it. Right. My mom loved it. She loved it. <laughs> she fucking loved it. She called me on my birthday. I was in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia. And it was one of the best birthdays of my life because I was still really invested in what my mom thought and what my mom thought of me and bringing my mom along on this journey that I felt I was embarking on. And that really mattered because she had given me my faith to begin with. And she, we talked for over an hour about it, about how the Love Wins uses the image of, of God as like a, it, it kind of calls it out that, that God is sort of like a bully or there's like these fear tactics or, or a bouncer mm. at a nightclub that isn't letting you in, which I, the way that I would frame it now is we made a God in our image instead of the other way around. A little sidebar on that. It's raining yep. right now. And the, the thorns and the roses are both being watered. Like, like God's love is so uh, expansive, expansive and infinite mm -hmm. and fathomless you can't even understand it you actually don't like it you would actually prefer that he would go but fuck the people that you hate and that's what we've done and and he sends them to a, an eternal furnace and we actually like that because it's like us it's like oh my god's like us he hates who i hate he likes who <laughs> i like happens to be us that's a real great trip like it it's actually a shitty horrible trip but like you can get off on it for a certain amount of time. So anyway, my mom was like, I, this articulated so many things that I've been feeling my whole life, but nobody's talking about. And we were just having a, a love fest. What makes it worse is I think it was three months later, I took her to meet Rob, uh, who had become my friend by that point. Maybe this was a year later, but Rob and I became friends. I brought my mom to meet him in Laguna beach and I was really excited. And the first thing she said to him was, I liked your book, but it's not biblical. Like right off the bat, like someone had gotten to her. Like that's really yes, what it was. You probably tried to have that conversation with someone else. That's exactly right. And that's exactly yeah. what happened. She started sniffing around the other little old ladies at church and good luck trying to sell or share the actual gospel as I, as what I consider the actual gospel of ubiquitous, endless, ceaseless love, which by the way, Jesus is constantly telling parables about how irrational God's love is and how non-merit-based it is. And Paul is writing about the same thing, I would argue. But uh, that doesn't sell and you better not like who we don't like. And these people go to hell, the gay people go to hell, the Jews go to hell, the Muslims go to hell, everybody's going to hell. And if you want to hang out with us and eat cucumber sandwiches or fucking whatever, you have to believe that. So my mom 
made an understandable choice. Again, the first function of religion is identity and cultural identity and tribal identity. There's nothing even wrong yep. with that. I'm not putting that down. And that was my mom's only social circle. So she got in line. I, I, I probably would have done the same thing. Um, I have a support How system. How did he handle it? Rob, oh, he laughed. He, he, he was, Rob is truly unflappable <laughs> and we still laugh about it. I mean, um, but it broke my heart. It really did. And because you saw, you saw yeah. within her, her true, you actually saw her thinking for herself. I, and, and that I must saw, have been amazing. Even more. There's that part of the, I think it's the worst matrix movie, the third matrix movie where <laughs> Neo and Trinity, there we have a father and son or a, a son and a mother and son. Uh, see, I said father and son, me being the father, I guess, but, um, they fly and they're in the, they're in the scorched earth. They're, you know, there's the cloud covering the whole earth because humanity wanted the machines not to have solar energy. So it's a dark mm -hmm. earth and, and Trinity, this is right before she dies. Um, they're flying in the ship and just for a brief moment, they break the cloud cover. It, it, oh God, I could cry. And she sees the sun and she's about to die. She's, she's like bleeding out. It's not a good moment, but she breaks the cloud cover and she sees the light and, and, and Carrie Ann Moss plays it brilliantly. Her breath is taken away. She hasn't seen the sun probably, I don't know, in her life. Like she, she lived in the underground, the matrix world. So she sees the sun for the first time takes her breath away. She tears up and then, and then the ship goes back under the cloud. She crashes, crashes and she dies. And that image is really mm. powerful to me because there are these moments and they're really rare and they're really rare with our archetypes, our parents and, and these powerful, you know, mythic figures. But I saw my mom um, and it's not about an idea. Ideas got her there, but she got to an idea idealist place of spaciousness. She was, she was spacious. She was, she was empty because she had been carrying and clinging to all of this stuff. And it wasn't what she picked up. It's that she put it all down. And so mm. she got above the clouds and she just, for a brief moment, I wasn't her son. I wasn't her father. I wasn't her husband. I was, I, we, we were just two things alive at the same moment, having the same experience and, and an, an experience of spaciousness of, I really like spaciousness. I think that's the best word. And, and, and then the next time I saw her, she, she was contracted again. And by the way, old Holmesy, this guy, I go through spaciousness and contraction I I every day. We all do. Yeah. I mean, like, that's I part open of it. and I close. Yeah. So well, I, I'm not, just, I'm, I mean, I'm it goes back her, to but. the yeah, it's like old school Plato, right? It's like it, you see the light and it's not easy to leave the dark tunnel. It hurts your actual eyes. And so yeah. sometimes you peep, you go back, you come out a little bit, you extra. I mean, it's that same idea. But I want to talk about you gave this amazing analogy in showing this whole movie. Talk about I really loved how in your book you went into when you read Joseph Campbell kind of for the first time. And yeah. this and how it really because it sounds like what you're talking about now and what you were almost in some ways trying to kind of, you know, expose your mom to as well is just this idea of just, it's not trying to change a religion. It's trying to understand kind of, you know, I like the idea of metaphor versus analogy. I found that fascinating. Yeah. So if you want to chat about that a little bit, which I feel like you Absolutely. kind of just did on your own a little bit. 
No, absolutely. Well, well, first of all, before before that. Hello, just a quick reminder that denmeditation.com is constantly offering you so many ways to go deeper. So if you have any curiosity to get certified or just take a course to learn more, we have it. So things coming up that I want to make you guys aware of is we have Reiki level one. So many people always want to be certified in Reiki or they just want to learn how to do it. That is February 25th and 26th. It is a two day level one certification. It is amazing. And again, this is all online, but live virtual. So you have access to your teacher. You ask questions. It is phenomenal. We also have tarot. Who doesn't want to learn to read tarot? Starting March 20th, that is an 11-week course. It is on Monday nights, Tarot 101. Again, online, so wherever you live, you get access and you can do this. So there's no excuses anymore. So go to denmeditation.com. Check out all of the stuff we have. And if for some reason you're listening to this at a much later date and these do not apply to you. There are tons of certifications and courses always coming down the pike. Talking about spaciousness, there, so Ramdas is a, is a teacher that that um, transformed my life, mm-hmm. and he has this very—I think it's very funny and very sort of fierce thing that he would say, one of his bits, I would call it a bit out of respect, not, not to say it's a joke, <laughs> but like one of his routines, meaning I've heard him say it many times in different circumstances. Look, we all, we do, anyone yeah. who teaches and anyone who becomes that level, yes. you're, you're t- there's a lot of stories that get repeated. The prodigal son was Jesus's closer. That's, that's what it was. <laughs> like that was his big finish. And that's just how we are. Save the best thing for last. But, mm-hmm. um, Ramdas talks about, um, I, I don't know exactly how he says it, so I'm jumping around, but Ramana Maharshi talks about if you're stoking a fire and the fire is your consciousness, your your awareness, your being, and you're stoking it with a stick, the stick is the method. The stick might be Judaism or Christianity or Hinduism or whatever it might be. Ramana Maharshi says when you're when you get the fire hot enough and bright enough and big enough, the last step is you throw the stick in the fire. That's the last thing. Mm. The fire the fire is where you got it. And now you let go of the method. So Ramdas talks about all methods are traps, meaning every articulation of the infinite mystery. Sorry. It's Ramdas. Ramdas? Is, that was actually um, Alec. <laughs> oh, cute. He should know better. Look at the calendar. We share a calendar. I usually have my phone on Do Not Disturb. <laughs> my phone rang during the podcast, my own podcast yesterday. So please don't even, don't even. But he says all methods are traps, which I find very beautiful. He goes, um, but in order for them to work, they have to trap you because they're constructs of the mind. So we're talking about something you can't talk about. It's ineffable, but we're talking about it. So of course it's a trap. It, it's a trick. It's, uh, it's, it's symbols. It's a dream. It's, it's, uh, or, or you could say it's using elements of a dream to wake you up from a dream. So of course mm-hmm. the elements themselves are also the dream. dream, but what else can we work with? We're only working with dreams. So you go like, maybe this part of the dream will help you wake up from the dream. But he says, sorry to stick the landing. He goes, you don't want to be it. Jewish. You want to be free. You don't want to be Christian. You want to be free. You don't want to be a Hindu or a Buddhist or, or study Kabbalah or whatever that Kabbalist. You want to be free. You want to be Trinity above the clouds. You want to be spacious and you know it when you have it because it's easy and it's light and it's open and it's spacious. That resonates with me so much. When I opened up the den, 
which already people are like, well, what are you doing? This makes no sense. You're leaving like a great career and you're opening up this meditation studio who even meditates because this was six years ago, right? And mm. my big thing that took a while to get people, not necessarily clients because they didn't know the difference, but teachers to be okay with was I was very clear that it was like non denominational and without a specific lineage. Very clear. I was like, I want there to be mindfulness classes, Buddhist classes. I want there to be Reiki. I want there to be, you know, whatever it is, Tantra. Um, I mean, there's so many. And my point was exactly that. I mean, I wish I had that language of these are all different sticks. These are all different methods to get people yeah. to wear to that freedom. And everyone needs something different, but not only needing something different, you, what you need at different times changes. And that's yep. where I think people get locked. So many people like, you know, this works for me now, which is beautiful. Great. No matter what you find, if it works, fantastic. But that doesn't mean that same thing three years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now is still what's going to continue your evolution or your growth. Absolutely. Ramdas also says that his guru um, was a man and there was there was a father thing going on in his psychology he needed a a father figure so his guru uh met a psychological need and what he said about that is like just work with it i have the same thing joseph campbell even sort of looks like my dad there's this weird thing going on that you can choose to lean into meaning like I am aware that I tend to like male teachers more than female teachers mm -hmm. because I have a father wound. Okay. You know what I mean? Like work with it. You're, you're again, I really think it's helpful to go. Like if we think of reality as a dream, use the parts of the dream that speak to you the most clearly and the most directly and your psychology is a part of that. And that's okay. And you're just creating more awareness for yourself. It's like the more you get to know yourself as you change, the easier it is to then find either the methods or the people or how you even, you know, react to stuff because you just have more self-awareness of what you need. Yes. So to answer your question, although I'm reminded of a, what Ramdas, when I visited Ramdas, one of the times his face was replaced with my father's face, which was really, really interesting i don't know <laughs> what word to use <laughs> I, it wasn't, know, it's like, it wasn't I love scary. it you're a writer you're a comedian you have shows and like are you like interesting <laughs> it's like that steve martin has that bit steve martin goes you got to learn the human language uh the, the english language he goes so few people can speak with pizzazz <laughs> <laughs> um i'm going with interesting yeah, it, it was interesting, but it wasn't, I can tell you what it wasn't. It wasn't frightening. Uh, and it wasn't uh, a revelation either. It was, it was just sort of, it's something that happened. But anyway, to tell you about Joseph Campbell, because I think that's also a great way to reclaim religion is uh, broad strokes. I took mushrooms. Not everybody has to take mushrooms. I took psychedelic mushrooms and I had an experience that was, we've already used this word, but it's a great word, ineffable, meaning you, you can't talk about it. And that was and really I want to remind the me. audience really quickly when he took mushrooms. Again, this is a guy who did like nothing. This is like you taking baby steps into worlds like this. Yeah, that's right. I wasn't coming from my teenage years of no. uh, 
uh, raves or anything. Like if anything, I, you made a comment that when you decided to finally be like, fuck this, I'm going through shit. I'm going to stay out till two in the morning. You figured yeah. everyone else was going through a lot of crap in their lives because the idea of just doing that was so that's foreign right. to you. Oh, that's so great that you remember that. Yeah. But again, not an exaggeration. I would be at a bar at two in the morning and I would be like, is everyone here going through a divorce? Why are they out? It just turns <laughs> out that's what people are doing. Um, so back to the shrimps. So I took mushrooms, but really we don't have to go too into that. The point was I couldn't talk about it. I, I, in fact, I vividly remember thinking as I was starting to <laughs> come down, I thought I'm going to have to talk about this and ruin it. And I knew that mm. like everything I was experiencing was unlabelable. So you take that experience and was then it interesting? It, it was interesting. <laughs> it was very interesting. But it um, it gave me a sense that or it gave me the experience that there are some things that you can't talk about directly. And then in comes Joseph Campbell, uh, who introduced in me the idea. And I actually I'm going to quote Richard Rohr. He says there are some truths so big you can only talk about them with lies. Uh, and he mm. says that a myth is always true and sometimes really happened. And I was like. Again, somebody said that in a church like that. That's incredible. He also said metaphor is the only language to talk about God, which, by the way, should be one of the easiest things to understand in the world, especially if you have an experience like taking mushrooms or something. You're just like, how much greater than would the concept of the origin of everything be just the, the most fundamental, irreducible slice of reality that we'll call God or the original source of reality? probably pretty hard to talk about. So it, it's actually giving God the concept. Um, it's due. It's giving it respect and saying, I can't talk about you directly. I can't, I can't even hold you in the, the four walls of my brain. What God worth believing in would be discussable, like Amazon primable, paintable, <laughs> frameable. Like, what are you talking about? You can't even frame the cosmos and, and, and you're saying, but, but God is here. Here he is. This is what makes him mad. It's like, get the fuck out of here. So you start recognizing that metaphor, and this is important. We've talked about this a million, but like Joseph Cannibal told me what a metaphor is. And he tells the story about being on a radio show and somebody's and somebody's giving him a hard time saying, you're saying God's not real or this, that, the other. And he's saying, no, I'm saying God is a metaphor. And he's saying, what does that mean? That means it's not really. He goes, no, give me an example. Joseph Campbell says to the radio host, he says, give me an example of a metaphor. He kind of embarrasses the guy. And the guy goes, uh, the, the man ran like a deer. And he goes, no, that's an analogy. And Joseph Campbell goes, the metaphor is the man was a deer. The man was a deer. God was walking on the earth and, and separating the heaven and the earth. The, God was a father. God was a man, God, whatever it is, it's, it's a metaphor, but God is a metaphor for what? For a mystery, okay, that absolutely transcends all categories of human thought, including being and non-being. So even, even talking about whether or not God exists is sort of moot. It's dogs trying to understand the internet. You need to humble yourself and say, I don't know. Uh, Barry Taylor, the, the road manager for ACDC said, God is the name of the blanket we put over the mystery to give it a shape. That doesn't mean we understand it or own it or anything. It's just so much easier to yeah. say God than to every time you want to talk about it, say 
a metaphor for a mystery that absolutely transcends all categories of human thought, including being and non-being. Instead of saying that, we just say, God, just so we can talk. It's giving ourselves a break. But unfortunately, we run with that and we turn it into something absolute and understandable that you can hold in your pocket and it's your buddy and everyone else's one is wrong and yours is right. But like anyone, atheist, theist, and everything in between <laughs> can agree that this is a mystery. And yeah. then we're saying God is a metaphor for that mystery, for that thing, that unknowable, unfathomable thing. Uh, thing is even wrong. It's not a thing. It's no thing. So to please the atheists, yeah, God nothing. is nothing. <laughs> God is nothing. In fact, look at the Big Bang Theory. Nothing erupted into everything. Nothing is, and I don't mean this to be cheeky or clever. It's like the nothing is the name of your God, and that's a great God. And when you die, you go to nothing. That's heaven. You went to be back with your God. You went into nothing. But it's, it's interesting. It's so similar. The, the idea of nothing, because again, people like to, um, you need like concrete facts, gives people anxiety. You know what I mean? And the nothingness, because I agree with you. And <clears throat> we teach, I think that's why a lot of teachers are like, you know, place the word God, universe, energy, whatever it is that makes you feel comfortable and doesn't trigger you because just to give it a name without, with understanding, it's something greater than that. It's like, you know, I was just teaching this the other day of like, how can we be comfortable like in the nothingness and just listen and how can you let go so much? And that's tricky. So people tend to feel, which is why I think then they go for those prongs. Like, no, give me, tell me what yeah. it is because the idea of, hanging out in nothingness, I think actually induces anxiety for a lot of people. And, and in that case, I would go, I would look at your psychology. Again, I, I'm a privileged kid. I, I, I talk shit about my parents. I'll also say something nice about my parents. I felt supported. <laughs> I felt loved and I, and I felt safe for the most part, apart from the arguing or whatever, but like in general felt safe. My wife, for example, does not like talking about um, the world being an illusion or uh, a dream or it being nothing. And that has a lot to do with one of her biggest fears is being alone, being left alone, all that sort of stuff. And that goes back into her life. And that is mm -hmm. fine. It, it, it's what it's almost like toxic Vedanta, like toxic non-duality. It's mm -hmm. often men that like get into that, the macho-ness of just how far you can push that nothing is happening or it's all, it's all zero mm -hmm. or it's all void or it's That's all interesting. empty. I think that's a thing and it's not being respectful of um, the incarnation. Uh, Ramdas would say, um, res respect the incarnation. Like don't, don't just assume it's some sort of mistake or look at it more like a school or, or something that should be happening because it's what's happening. There's a reason. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't mind going into, into the, 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 the nothing, nothingness stuff. <laughs> I, Me I neither, I but I get it. And I think that respecting the incarnation is a huge thing because I love, <laughs> I always say that too. Like there's a reason for whatever it is, you're in this body, in this situation. So I don't have the answers. I can't give them the answers of the why or what to do with that. And like, that's only yeah. something I guess between their nothingness and themselves. Um, but I, I do find it. Go ahead. Oh no. You find no, it. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, sorry. I just remember something I was trying to, trying to remember, which, so I, I'm a, I'm obsessed with Rupert Spira. He's one of my great teachers and he has tons of stuff, 
on YouTube. So you don't even have to buy anything. Rupert S P I R A, but he's a non-dualist and he's brilliant. And he would say, I think of someone who's afraid of God being no thing, meaning not an object. Another way we can soften that is it's consciousness without an object. It's, it's awareness itself, which by the way, is what Moses met. I am that I am. I, I am emness. Yeah. I am beingness. And by the way, it's that like everything. Yeah. I think it's behind everything Yeah, or like within everything. Yeah. You could say it's everything. I'm not correcting you. I'm just, I'm just playing with the idea. You're processing. I like it. I'm processing in real time. But he, I've heard him say, when let's say you are worried that it's nothing and you don't like that it's nothing. So there's two thoughts. It's like, I'm worried that it's nothing. And then it's like, and then you have the next thought, which is, I'm afraid that it's nothing. Where were you in between those thoughts is, is a helpful thing. Like, what were you mm-hmm. between those thoughts? And you start to see that objectless awareness, meaning awareness with nothing to point itself to, attach itself to, a thought, a feeling, a sensation, a perception, all those types of things, is what you are. So there's nothing to be afraid of. We're talking about you. And Rupert would also say, you have an experience of this every night in deep sleep. Deep sleep is an experience. You don't remember it. But it's, there's an experience. It's not just you close your eyes, you fall asleep, and you wake up. There's an experience. You wake up, and there was something. He would say it's not the, it's not, uh, the absence of awareness. It's the awareness of absence. And again, mm. Ramana Marshi makes the same point that deep sleep is this like familiar homecoming. And I would say it's this gracious rehearsal. Um, to return to your original state. And I'm not talking about dreaming. I'm talking about when you're not even there, mm-hmm. but you are there. It's a paradox. That is like a, a kind of a, a, a hint to there being nothing to be afraid of. Cause he always turns it around and goes, are you afraid when you go to bed at night? Like, do you hate, or do you look forward to it? Do you love it? Like everybody loves sleep. Like we love it. He's like, it's, it's because you get to be, Oh, pure awareness without looking at anything, without dreams, without body, without identity. So there's nothing to be right. afraid it's, of. It's like it's our one chance to go truly back into our soul without all the incarnations like limitations that we bring into it. Which is wonderful. I mean, I love it. Yeah. I'm not getting enough of it. <laughs> and it's <laughs> me neither. Yeah. Me neither. You know, so interesting in that, like, did you feel when you started to have this awareness of a lack of, you know, limitations or walls around your God, you know, um, conditions around your God. Is that when you, the walls around yourself started coming down too? Like you started to be able to understand who you were? Like, did it go hand in hand or did one um, precede the other? I think, you know, how you do anything is how you do everything. And the God you build is, is very reflective of how you're treating yourself for sure. These are, these are sort of basics for sure. So as soon as you start to consider that it might just be true that, that the whole thing is impersonal and uh, loving, it's supporting you, it's sustaining you and all of these things. And it's not 
mad when you masturbate and it's not mad when you say motherfucker and all that stuff. Yeah. You, it, it liberates you as, as well. I mean, you, you stop living in that constant fear. Um, and, and that's really beautiful. And then, and then something starts to happen is when before it was like my model of, of religion was act like something's happened and the something being conversion or salvation or enlightenment or nirvana, like church was the place that we went to act like it had happened, meaning mm. be nice, uh, be generous, um, be kind, be patient, all of these things. And by the way, I'm not putting this down. It's a great place to start. It's a necessary beginning even. Let's see what it's like. Let's be kind. Let's, uh, Think about loving our neighbor as ourselves. Right. These are not bad principles. <laughs> they're not bad, but you're, you're still doing something. Meaning what is way more interesting to me now is experiential conversion that results in that behavior organically. Meaning if I'm kind to you, um, that's great. I'm not going to say don't do that. Of course, do that. But if I'm kind to you because the 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 separation between us is vanishing that's different um to me i i don't want to use words like better or worse but that is richer to me um eckhart tolle talks about and i think it's from a course in miracles is like if god is the sun we're all rays of light from mm -hmm. the sun or you could say waves on the ocean or whatever whatever metaphor you want but like we're these rays and if I'm looking at you as a separate thing and agreeing in the conceit of your separateness and I'm a separate Ray and you're a separate Ray and I give you a sandwich, great, fantastic. I think what's happening with our Christs and our Buddhas is they're seeing, they're tracing it back to its source. So the reason I'm patient with you or the reason I care about your needs is because I'm starting to wake up and recognize instead of seeing the ray, I'm looking back to the sun where we're one, that, mm. that namaste place. And I'm not just intellectually holding that as a, as a thought experiment, but I've, I've been blessed or fortunate enough to have enough of those experiences to believe that it just might be true. And then you're nice for a different reason. You know what I mean? Mm, and then it true. can be a, a little bit lighter and a little bit uh, lighter is a good word. Lighter, spacious, interesting. Yeah, these are good words. Yeah, <laughs> lighter, spacious, and interesting. <laughs> I'm almost, we're so close to being out of my depth. Like I, I'm not used to going this deep, so I'm doing my best. By the way, to... I'm loving this. I find you fascinating because, again, and we haven't even really gotten the the fact that you are also, I mean, you are comedian. That's what you do at the heart, you know, you, yeah. whether it's stand up a show, you know, a talk show or a book, it's like you are a comedian and not, look, I've worked with so many, I married, it's not that comedians don't have depth, but I would say a lot are scared of it. You know, I think a lot of emotion, you know, a lot of repressed emotion is kind of what fuels sometimes the comedy. So mm -hmm. how do you feel like, how is it that navigating that world actually? I mean, you do it very differently. I don't know why to me, it's the most natural thing in the world that a comedian would be um, not just spiritual, but deeply spiritual. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I don't know why it's me. I'm including myself because here Cause we are. You. But um, 
Russell Brand and Duncan Trussell. I don't know why. Or True. Bill Hicks. I don't know what's going on. Um, I, 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 my best guess is, um, we don't like belonging to groups, which by the way, is that fierceness, that, that discernment is so helpful on a spiritual mm -hmm. path. Um, like if you really want to get down to like, there are no groups, like the ultimate joke is that, is that we think reality is real. Like that should be right. our only obsession, but, but so many comedians, I think, sell it short and go like, no, reality is real. Or they, or they worry that it's not interesting or funny or helpful or useful to, to talk past reality. But, um, I think that's starting to change the, I, the most popular bit I've, I've done in, in that, like sort of got. I, I, viral. I don't know what the qualifications are for being viral, but I seen get passed around a lot is a bit I wrote about how everything doesn't make any sense and how we're molecules and we're floating in space and it's infinite, infinite space, but it's expanding. Like that doesn't make any sense. Like what's on the other side of the expanding, all these things. And that's the clip. It didn't even do that well when I filmed the special, but that's the clip <laughs> that everybody is drawing to. That bit used to bomb. I, I, I only did it at my special because it's my fans. And I'm like, they'll go with me here. But like that happened to get passed around. So anyway, I get that comedians don't want to belong to a group. They want to be at the table at the back of the wedding, making fun of the wedding. Fun of everyone. And making yes. fun and keeping that distance that keeps us safe. It also keeps us in community. I still do it. Like the way I bond with human people is to talk shit. I like talking shit. Like, who are you talking? Like, what are you talking shit about? Like, how do you define yourself? Like by what you don't like, like, that's still my comedian thing. Like what is driving you crazy? Like what, what are people doing that no one seems to notice that we want to talk? Oh, thank God. Like, I love that, that back and forth, but it does keep us on the other side of religion. But like Ricky Gervais, I haven't seen his most recent thing, but they're, a lot of times they're, they're doing the straw man thing where it's like, do you really believe that a snake offered a naked man and woman a bite of an apple? And I'm like, <laughs> you know what, dude? Like a lot of people do, and that's fun, and we can laugh at that. It's fair game, like fair play to you. But there are a lot of people that go, that's a poem. That's a poem. That's, that, that's an epic myth. It's a, it's a creation myth. It was never meant to be taken literally. I would say the whole thing isn't meant to be taken literally. It's not about, anyway, lighting that on fire is so uninteresting to me. There, there's, a, there's a rabbinical teaching, any old donkey can tear down a barn, but it takes a special donkey to build one. And I'm like, thank <laughs> you. I also love it because you picture a donkey with his hooves holding a hammer. That <laughs> yes. deconstruction is only interesting, I'm going to say, four years. You get four years to be mad about what they told you was real and you shouldn't touch your ding dong and, and you shouldn't have sex and all this and Adam and Eve and uh, all that stuff. Please limit it to four years and then get building a fucking barn that you like. And no right, one is doing that. Any barn. Any barn. Right. You can design it however you want. It does not have to be a specific barn. <laughs> yes. But atheism doesn't get, I don't think it gets you off the hook. If you're just like, I'm an atheist, it's just like, okay, we'll, we'll carry that 
to its natural conclusion. Like what's, what's going on with an erupting nothingness and erupting nothingness is still. I've had this conversation before. (laughs) And I'm not saying this to be like, you dummies. I'm saying it's Terrence McKenna. He goes, we believe in a universe with no miracles. If you'll afford us one miracle. And I'm like, please let's, all just humble ourselves and go, we don't know. And most atheists, by the way, uh, beautiful, gorgeous atheists will say, I don't know. And that is a deeply powerful, mystical, connected place to stand way better than God did it. It took seven days and I'll never think about it again. I'd rather talk to the, to the atheists, to be honest. I feel like they might be, I think they are closer to having an, an authentic mystical experience. Well, the I don't know, I think, is as almost spiritual as you can get. Because, I mean, it brings it back to the earlier conversation. If you are comfortable saying I don't know and willing to explore the I don't know, then inherently you're allowing yourself to be in the nothingness. Yeah, that's right. When there, Yeah. No, go ahead. Where do your thoughts come from? Is a, is a great one. These beliefs, their thoughts, they're illusory. They change. Spirituality is interested in that which doesn't change. That's, that's the, that's what spirituality is. Like there's this great exercise. I forget his name, but he goes, think of a memory from your childhood. And I always go to my neighbor's pool and playing in my neighbor's hmm. pool. And I was like, was there a sense of being there? Like the same sense of being that you have now? Yeah, there was. And, and the same sense of being I have now. There's there's a through line and it's being. And the thoughts appear. There was a time when Pete identified with a cluster of thoughts that we call beliefs of fundamentalist Christianity. And then he was more Buddhist. And then he was this and that. These things are are transitory. They're They're changing. But the the question, where do my thoughts come from? Out of what do they appear and where into do they disappear? That's spirituality. It's also the higher levels of science, wondering what awareness is. We're, We're studying reality, but spirituality would say, with what are you studying it? Studying. Yeah, with what are you studying? What is So the thought, there is no God, where does it appear and where does it go? Um, and by the way, ride it. I mean, I, I don't want to live in a world where there's nobody saying there is no God. That that's a that's all all it all belongs. It all fits. And you know what I mean? I don't want Bill Maher to be like, I love Jesus. I don't want it. That's great. I want <laughs> Bill Maher to be Bill Maher. But the question that no one that that very few people are asking is, um, what is it that is aware of my experience? That what is that consistent through line that was the same when we started this interview, that, that, that blank piece of mm-hmm. paper upon which everything is written, or, or Rupert talks about it being a movie screen. No matter what movie is playing, the screen is the constant thing that makes it all possible. Mm. What is the screen? Can you get in touch with the screen? Here's why you want to get in touch with the screen. The screen is made of peace. The screen is made of happiness, I would even say. It's made of bliss. It's made, it has no needs. The movie characters have all these needs. The screen is fine. And the screen isn't tarnished by what happens in the movie. The screen has never changed. That is the consistent thing that you can call your soul a piece of God. And that is where we, where we all are. 
you don't even have to go I mean, anywhere. You're already there. <laughs> just saying those, yeah, saying those words just gives so much peace and calm because it, I mean, look, everything's a vibration. So it's literally tapping into that vibration within me and hopefully whoever's listening to this at this time, waking up that vibration within us, kind of reminding us like, ah, oh, yes, that's the part of us, the calm part, the part that's always constant, the part that's exactly the unexplored part that is everything and nothing. That knows your thoughts. Like your yes. thought, like I don't really care as much about even what I believe. I used to think it was the whole thing. I'm right. much more interested in the unchanging, boundaryless, borderless. Like really, if you want, close your eyes. I don't mean now, but anyone, if you want, you can close your eyes, ask yourself one of these sacred questions that Rupert taught me. Where do my thoughts come from? What is it that's aware of my experience? And you see that you get a, a taste of that, of that constant thing. So that, that is, that's the name of the game these days is getting in touch with that, which doesn't change. It was the same at the beginning of this interview. It was when I was, I'm 43. It was there when I was 23. It was there when I was three. It was there when I was born. Mm. And I, and, and when you really get quiet and look at it, and you look for a boundary, Muji would say, can you found a, a, a boundary when you're closing your eyes and you get in touch with the, the sensation of awareness itself? Is there a border on the other side of which it is not? You can't, no, no, no. Okay, so that it's infinite. How old is it? Was it born? Does it die? Not your body, not, not you, that, that quality. That, th yes. You're, you're a light bulb getting in touch with electricity. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and yeah, when you cannot there. identify with the bulb and you can start recognizing that, yes, there is a time that Pete will die. Pete will be gone. Pete will no longer walk around and put on pants and eat sandwiches. But the irreducible nature of Pete is electricity, you could say, if he's a light bulb. Then I don't <laughs> panic as much when you think about the light bulb breaking or going out where the electricity just left and, and you left with it. <laughs> um, so we're jumping in here because hilariously enough, like power went out. So we're just jumping yeah. in. So sorry for the little blip, but always happy to have you, but it was perfect timing because you and I had already spoken for so long and I don't want to keep you, <clears throat> but I do want to talk about, I find one thing that's so fascinating is you more than most people in life have really accomplished so many incredible things. I mean, the fact that you've met and worked one-on-one -on -one with Ram Dass, the fact that you've had a talk show, the fact that you've published a book, the fact that you had your own television show and I'm and, and you still have so much more time ahead of you. And it feels like every area you kind of put some, you know, effort into, you really expand. Do you feel like there's any connection of that with kind of this depth of exploration you do with yourself? Yeah, I think it's all related. I, you know, Judd Apatow and I did a TV show together called Crashing, and we recently did a chat. And these these are his words, not mine, because it would be kind of self serving, I suppose, to say that this was my theory. But I, I can I can agree with this. You'll see. <laughs> we Judd loves spiritual things. He loves talking about all this stuff, and I for whatever reason, I, I do have like, well, I have a real passion for it. Like it's, it's, there's a lot of things, including comedy that I sort of sometimes have to relight the pilot light on. Like sometimes I have to rediscover my mm -hmm. passion for 
literally every element of show business. It might be writing, it might be performing, it might be stand up, but like sometimes it's there and I'm just like so happy and other times it takes effort. But one thing that I have, I don't have any of that efforting is, is what we've been talking about is like the meaning of life. It always lights me up. I'm sick today. I, I, <laughs> See, I talk about it and it triggers the cough. The cough that threw off the electricity. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but like, so I'm like under the weather, but like our conversation really like brought me to life and all that sort of stuff. And that's very natural. So Judd and I, Judd's doing a, a new book and their interviews and they're about the meaning of life. And so we, we talked about all of this sort of stuff you and I talked about. And he sort of said, like, I think that when we decided to work together, there was sort of a soul level there, knowing this relationship, him to me, me to him will be beneficial in that area. Mm. Um, and I don't know if that's, I don't know how to think about that, but it feels right to me. Meaning people that are curious about these things do tend to attract each other to quote, to quote Muji again. He's like, how do you find spiritual friends? How do you find people that are interested in this type of stuff? He's like, when the flowers open, the bees come. And, mm. and I think that's certainly true. There's like a certain frequency. On, on a less woo-woo level, I do think any, this goes back to what I was saying, I don't know why more comedians aren't deeply spiritual, is because like any exploration into the nature of your existence, which is all built on reality, your reality, and the mechanism with which you perceive reality, or, or I would say with which you make reality, um, that's your job as an artist. I think it's so interesting that so many of us stop. I love Seinfeld, but so many of us stop and be like, she eats her peas one at a time. I'm like, that, that's great. <laughs> but like, I think because of the increase in content, there's so much, so many TV shows, so many stand-up specials, so many podcasts, it actually is forcing the artist to go into those existential places. And I think that's really great. I think that's the job. The job is, of the artist or just your job as a human person is to, I think, always just try and go a little bit deeper. Mm. And if you're doing that, eventually you'll get to the questions we were talking about. What is it that's aware of my experience? Or you could say who or what. I say what because I find that it's a what. But you could say who or what. Is it that's aware of my experience or even more simply, which we didn't say before, what do I mean when I say I, what do I mean when I say I, cause not your body. Uh, cause your body is changing every seven years. They say, uh, I could cut <laughs> off limbs of you and you would still be saying I, well, it's that great thing about the boat. Like you, you inherit your father's boat. You replace the floors, you replace the hull, you replace the cabin before you know it, you've replaced everything, but you still call it my father's boat. Well, mm. that's your body. And I find if you've ever had like a big patch of dead skin on your foot or something, or you go to the batting cage and a big part of your hand falls off, you rip <laughs> off something that just five minutes prior you would have defended and insisted was you. I think that's a really fun, oh. cutting your hair, losing a tooth, cutting your fingernails. It's all of this, these little reminders. And I'm not even trying to be funny. Going to the bathroom, something that was so with you is now just an afterthought. Well, that's why some kids have a hard time clues. with it when they learn. Yes. Because of that reason, I feel like they feel like they're letting go of part of themselves and it's scary. Of course it is. And, and, and it can be. Um, but I, so just to simply answer your question, I certainly the book wouldn't have existed because that, that 
the only thing I had a book worth of things to say was <laughs> about spiritual or um, metaphysical uh, things. But then I also think like crashing, for example, is, is a story of what Richard Rohr calls falling upward. It's when something you don't want to have, or, or, or another way to look at it is like um, the reason or the meaning of suffering, the, the, the alchemy of turning suffering into something good, which is really one of the things that I think the universe, and, and really we can take it, take this apart from everything that I was saying earlier, the universe, meaning just this reality, yearns for itself, wants to recreate itself, wants to restore itself, wants to recycle itself. Um, sorry, I got distracted by a phone call. And, uh, and suffering is part of that. Like the human person doesn't change unless it's uncomfortable. So there's sort of a, a beautiful, um, spiritual underpinning to that show. Meaning like, you don't want your wife to leave you. You don't want to lose your job. You don't want to this, you don't want to that. But the way energy moves in this universe is it doesn't tend to Stay change strong. unless it's unhappy. I just saw Eckhart Tolle in, in LA and he goes, no one wakes up from their comfort zone. And I was like, man, isn't that funny? It's so true. Uh, it's so true. And by the way, that's so a perfect true. place for us to wrap up because that's why people listen to this podcast is usually because they're in something. They're like, why the fuck does this feel like shit? And is there anything that's going to help me get through it? And yeah. I feel like you've shared so much wisdom and I am so unbelievably grateful for you taking the time because I think I could talk to you for another three hours, but I feel like yeah, you've already I feel the same way. given us so much and I'm so grateful mm. and um, thank you. And hopefully I can have you back yeah. on because I do feel like you have so much more to share. Well, it was my pleasure. And yeah, we can do it another time for sure. I love talking about these things. It was interesting. My wife and I went to breakfast after, after this and, and being sick and stuff. There was so much talking about having it figured out. And then like, I went to breakfast and I was like, man, I'm just depleted. So like, even on the days where I can recall it or recite it or, uh, share it, it doesn't mean I can go to breakfast and be it. And, mm -hmm. and, and if there's anything that doesn't mean it was an unpleasant breakfast, I just noticed my body was, was restless. And all I want to say is everyone listening in Utah, I'm, I'm like, I'm, also a work in progress, figuring it out. And these conversations, even though in this conversation, I did a lot of the talking, I'm talking to myself too. I'm trying to remind myself. I'm trying to like by rote almost like learning how to write. I just want to do it over and over, talk about it over and over until it becomes reflexive. And that's the key. It's the awareness too. When we realize, like you said, you were aware that it wasn't feeling Right. And that, I say that all the time. It's like, I mean, I wish I, everything I could teach, I could practice every single second of the moment, but like I do my best and sometimes yeah. I succeed and sometimes <laughs> I really, really don't. I find that not with Eckhart Tolle seems to be one of the few exceptions and Byron Katie seems to be one of the few exceptions, but almost everyone. And I mean this in the most beautiful and complimentary way, not to discredit anyone. A lot of my favorite spiritual teachers are doing what we're doing, which is they're, they're talking to themselves. They're sharing what mm -hmm. they, what they're finding and they're doing it, not just to teach or to share, but to remind themselves. And that's, that's where the passion comes from. 
you know, because you can. You, yes, I agree with that. You need it too. I need yes. it too. I need, I, it, I need too. it a lot. <laughs> Some days yeah. more than others. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. Thank you, and everyone, stay tuned for his personal practice. He's gonna share something with some great wisdom with us. And again, Pete, thank you so so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Pete's now going to do his personal practice for us, which is a mantra that actually helps him when he is feeling overwhelmed. The mantra, I think it's funny to call it a mantra because it's in English. Everybody, everybody thinks the mantra has to be in Sanskrit or something, but I actually find the most useful mantra and a lot of my favorite mantras are in English because um, I'm a head person. I'm a top down person, but actually the reason I love this one is because it absolutely short circuits um, a pattern, a chain reaction in your mind, meaning something's going wrong, uh, something's annoying you, there's some sort of suffering, there's some sort of lack of control. And um, when this happens, in fact, I'll give an example, it's best with an example, is I, I remember I wrote a book and all of these copies went out to be reviewed. I was naive at that point too. I thought like the New York Times was going to review my book. I, I just thought that was a foregone conclusion. Like, of course, I wrote a book. The New York Times will review it. So anyway, in my mind, again, you see the mind is often wrong. I thought the New York Times was getting a copy of this book. And when I looked at the advanced copy, it was like the third draft of the book, meaning not only was it unfinished and there were several, like four or five drafts after that, that should have gone out there were like notes to myself in it, like very personal. It was like somebody had printed a work in progress where I had like, I put the word flapjacks in the room, in the, in the book at random parts, because that's a section I needed to go back to. So when you're in a big document, like a book, it's helpful to go like search for the word flapjacks. Okay. I need to work on this. So it just had the word flapjacks in it. Anyway, you could see that I was, uh, had reason to be stressed and upset. And I remember I went in the bedroom and I just closed the door and was just sitting there kind of quietly. I just wanted to be alone. And then I remembered something that's in the book. This mantra is in the book. And this was so funny to be stressed about the book and forget what the book says about a situation like this. And the mantra is, yes, thank you. And in my experience, when your mind is getting carried away and telling you a story, which it's really, you know, that's one of the, the great wisdom teachings is it's not what's happening to you. It's your thoughts about what's happening to you that are making you upset. Um, I was playing it out, all of these things that none of which happened. And when you say, yes, thank you, sometimes out loud, yes, thank you. Yes, thank you. It is like cold water on your face or something. It's absolutely counterintuitive. And because it's counterintuitive, it's, 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 deeply disruptive, meaning it, it stops, in my experience, it stops the suffering immediately because you're just actively, you're using this, this precious gift of human agency to irrationally choose the opposite of what you should be feeling. And you say, you, you try to have, um, I sometimes call it nostalgia for the present. It's like all the best stories you have are these things that you wouldn't want to happen to you. And only like a couple of days later, you go like, you're telling it at a party and everyone's laughing and you're laughing. Try to do that in the moment. And one of the ways to do that is to say, yes, thank you. So that is rocking your baby at 4 a.m. in a cold house or whatever it may be. Your brain is halted in its ceaseless 
telling of an unpleasant story that just compounds your suffering, it stops in its tracks when you say, in my experience, when you say, yes, thank you. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.